System detects time stream error. Horrific error. anomaly detected. Must reset time stream to continue hero adventure. Error. Horror month protocols now active. Horror across the decades detected. Welcome nerds to the darkest timeline. Welcome to Horror Month on The Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is The Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're putting a bow on Horror Month as we count down our favorite horror films of the 2010s. We also have reviews for Black Adam, Star Wars Tales of the Jedi, and The House of the Dragon. And we're breaking down episode 8 of Andor and talking the latest AEW Dynamite. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. Let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters, we're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning potential spoilers for upcoming films and shows ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. Well, up first, Christian, apparently Warner Brothers Discovery listens to the show because they just named James Gunn and Peter Safran the co-CEOs of DC Studios. Well, it seems like our prayers may have been answered as Warner Bros. Discovery forms a new division in DC Studios, replacing DC Films that will have James Gunn and Peter Safran as co-chairs and co-CEOs running the future of films, TV, and animation. The Hollywood Reporter claims Gunn's focus will be on creative while Safran will handle, you know, the more business side of it, with both still, you know, expected to work on projects as well. They will continue to report to Zaslav along with the other film heads like DeLuca and Pamela Abdi. But really, it's awesome to see that the keys are now in their hands for DC projects. Yeah, I mean, we've been calling for this since we saw the Suicide Squad, right? Um... It just makes perfect sense uh, to put someone in charge who loves, you know, the content and, you know, creatively is going to do right by it. James Gunn has a hell of a track record when it comes to the superhero thing, right? So it just makes sense to put someone in charge with a real vision, you know, for this content. I mean, he's got my trust so far, so I'm just excited to see where this goes. And I'm also wondering if he will be doing that Superman project that we were joking about last week. Well, I mean, that's... The real question here like since he's now co-ceo like is that gonna take him off the board like are we not gonna see him sitting in the director's chair as much which would be a shame um but i, I don't know i'm just happy that it feels like dc is gonna have an overall vision mm-hmm. with someone in charge who actually cares about these characters and i know like his sense of humor isn't for everyone but at the same time like he knows the right time and right place you know for that style of comedy mm-hmm. you know he's not going to be making the same jokes that he makes in peacemaker in you know a justice league film if you will and since he cares about dc he's going to put people in place who also cares about dc so i don't know i think this is great news now, I don't really know much about Peter Safran, but it sounds like he's just going to be kind of doing like the bookkeeping side of things. Like I, he was a producer with James Wan, right? On like uh, the Conjuring series. Yeah, like all the Conjuring okay. films. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that's not a bad track record either. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> well, moving on and sticking with DC, it seems like HBO Max's Green Lantern Corps series will now focus on Jon Stewart's story. There's been a 
big change in direction for Greg Berlanti's Green Lantern series, as instead of the show focusing on Guy Gardner and Alan Scott, the story will be about Jon Stewart. This is after you know showrunner Seth Graham Smith left the series with a completed eight-episode script. The stars attached, you know, Finn Whitrock and Jeremy Irvine also will no longer be a part of the series. All that really seems to remain is Berlanti Production Studios along with Berlanti producing, with no replacements announced for anyone else just yet. Hopefully this series doesn't get ultimately purged as it really starts over. So Jon Stewart's always been my Green Lantern, because by the time I started seriously reading comics, um, Hal Jordan already had his heel turn. So, you know, I never experienced really Hell Jordan as Green Lantern until later on, until Jeff John's uh, Rebirth um, series. So I don't know, like, and like most of my exposure was through uh, the Justice League cartoon. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I love Jon Stewart Green Lantern, so I'm on board with this. And honestly, with all the cuts, I'm just happy this is still happening. Exactly. Especially with it being started fresh now, I was like, oh, if they're still cutting things out there, I, I imagine this would be up there as one of them. Yeah, I'm wondering if part of this like realignment has to do with them cutting the budget, you know, because I, I believe the premise before was it was supposed to be like featuring really multiple, you know, Green Lanterns part of the, the core. And obviously mm -hmm. it's still, you know, got the Green Lantern core name. Um, but if it's more just focused on Jon Stewart, then, you know, maybe you're not dealing with such a large cast of characters every episode. So, but that's just me speculating because at this point, I obviously don't trust Warner Brothers Discovery. <laughs> well, speaking of cosmic superheroes, just maybe on the other side of the fence, it looks like Silver Surfer will be getting a Disney Plus special presentation ahead of the Fantastic Four film release. With a new focus on Disney Plus special presentations, a rumor from the Cosmic Circus suggests the Silver Surfer could be getting a project of his own released before the Fantastic Four film. The project would would center around the Silver Surfer working for Galactus in the far reaches of space, and it's speculated that it would tie directly into the Fantastic Four film, which would most likely make Galactus your big bad for both projects. Fantastic Four is currently set for February 2025, with this rumor also claiming a possible late 2024 release or early 2025 release of Silver Surfer. Yeah, what the fuck? Spoilers. All right. <laughs> I mean, if Silver Surfer is going to be part of, you know, the Fantastic Four film, then obviously the villain has to be Galactus. I'm wondering if this special presentation is going to give us, like, the origin story of Silver Surfer. Like, do, like, kind of like a prologue, you know, before the film. So, you know, they get some of that heavy lifting done, you know, before the movie comes out. So you, you don't have to waste time on that. Um, mm -hmm. It's a great story. Uh, he basically brokers a deal with Galactus to save his planet and in turn becomes Galactus's herald. And I'm sure part of the attraction of telling that story would be, you know, Disney saving a whole lot of money on their effects budget. Not that they need to. They can just hoard some more money. I and agree pay. too, but I mean, <laughs> look at the CGI we've been getting lately. <laughs> and Silver Surfer's the you know, they gotta nail that CGI. We mm. don't want him looking like the Doug Jones version of the character. Like, Silver Surfer is such a visually cool character. Like, you have to nail it, like, right out of the box. But, I mean, regardless of their budget, it is a great story, you know, about, like, making the ultimate sacrifice. So, mm -hmm. and if this story is true, 
um it'll be interesting to see if you know marvel does more of this where you know before one of their big feature films they do kind of like a prologue special where they introduce like some of the ancillary characters that help inform audiences so they don't you know bog down the films with you know tons of exposition because there's tons of great little stories they could tell in like a 45 minute block that would also help enrich the universe that they're creating because i mean they're they're throwing in character after character left and right. And this is a great way to just explore them a little bit further. No, 100%. I mean, look what they did with, you know, Werewolf by Night. They really introduced audiences to a whole new corner of the MCU. We also got confirmation this week that Vision will be getting his own Disney Plus series called Vision Quest. Um, the series will obviously star Paul Bettany, and there have been rumors flying around that Elizabeth Olsen could potentially appear as Wanda as well, according to Deadline, at least. Um, um, Jack Schaefer, who worked on WandaVision and now Agatha Coven of Chaos, is set to be the showrunner as well. So we'll see if they try to connect anything with any of those previous shows I just mentioned, like Agatha Coven of Chaos, which debuts in Marvel's Phase 5. According to Bleeding Cool, Keely Marcel, writer of the first two Venom films, is set to direct the third installment in the Spider-adjacent franchise. With less fan support for the second film and Morbius's big flop, we'll see how Venom 3 is responding to and if it will play into whatever is going on with you know that Madam Web or Craven films that are currently in development over at Sony or if it will potentially play into anything with Spider-Man as far as the MCU goes as they did tease that little bit of you know Venom ink going into the uh, actual MCU universe but who knows what's going to happen with that all right up next we've got some Star Wars news uh Ezra Bridger might be getting his own live action solo series Daniel RPK of the Disney his insider claims that Iman Isfandi has signed on to play as Ezra in his own Disney Plus live action series following his appearance in Ahsoka in 2023. The story has been said to focus only on Ezra with no word of you know, if any other member of the Ghost Crew being a part of the series. But there is no official word on this being a real project at this time. So I'm not the biggest Ezra fan. So I don't know about him having his own solo series, but I've also haven't been introduced to this character in live mm -hmm. action form. So maybe I'll fall in love with them in the Ahsoka series and be clamoring, you know, for this series. So I don't know. There'll probably be a new maturity to the character, you know, that's fine. That's, and that's what oh, yeah. I mean, at the end of Rebels, that's what we saw. Right. Uh. But him carrying a series on his own. I don't know. But I'm, I'm guessing that will it'll probably be like, you know, another sequel to the Rebel series, which Ahsoka is really like yes. shaping up to be at this point. Well, staying in a galaxy far, far away, we have a rumor of another possible Star Wars movie coming down the pipeline. Lost co-creator David Lindoff and Academy Award winner Charmaine Chinoy, who directed Miss Marvel, will be working together on an unannounced Star Wars film, according to Deadline. This kind of adds to a long list of future projects for Star Wars that haven't actually been given titles just yet, as this one has also been projected to be far from coming soon. Though Disney has slated Star Wars films for 2025 and 2027. Hey man, after The Watchmen, you give Damon whatever he wants. Right. We heard this rumor, I think, a while back. So and obviously this hasn't been officially announced since we just learned that uh, Kathleen Kennedy is no longer allowed <laughs> to <laughs> announce projects before they're not like in like at least pre-production. But if this is true, I mean, I feel like this is great news. I mean, while I wasn't a huge fan of Lost 
after Watchmen, you know, give this guy what he wants. You know, you want him, you know, working on your franchise, especially since they're just kind of handing out Star Wars projects nowadays. Uh-huh. At least on the film end, it feels like. So. I'm just waiting for something to you know bear fruit. Like we get like an actual glimpse of something. Yeah. I don't even is anything actually in production right now. I don't think there no, is. I don't even feel like Taika's project's probably not in production when yet. When you said twenty, and... what twenty twenty five? You said right. Mm-hmm. I cringed at that because I was like, "There's no way that's they're hitting <laughs> that date." Because if they actually like start production on something, you know, we would have heard about it at this point. And yes. those films take a while to make, so I don't know. I, it, it feels like it's going to be more of a 2026, 2027, you know, deal. They're just really more focused on the series at this point, which honestly, I mean, I've been fine with. And lastly, we've got some horror news. Looks like Jigsaw will be returning to the Saw franchise in Saw 10, as Tobin Bell will reprise his classic role as John Kramer, aka the Jigsaw Killer. In a presser you know, from Lionsgate, they claim Tobin's addition is all a part of their plan of capturing everything fans love about the Saw franchise, while also keeping them guessing with all new traps and a new mystery to solve. Saw 10 is set for an October 27th 2023 release i mean with how convoluted the series like had gotten recently i'm totally fine with them just you know doing like a soft reboot bring back tobin have him be jigsaw again and just starting over like i'm fine with that i'm fine with that as long as it's like hey this is maybe you know some traps that he did at some point that we we haven't seen or something like that. Like, I don't want it to be a uh, like I'm actually alive this whole time. No, you know, I don't want them to go that no. route. <laughs> just do. I mean, literally, like I'm fine with them just you know restarting things. Like you could have it yes. be like a prequel or you know an in between quill, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Uh-huh. As long as it's Tobin, you know, as Jigsaw, because I feel like the the series really lost its way when they killed off you know Jigsaw. Because they never really found, like, a proper replacement for him. Mm -hmm. So it just, I don't know. For me personally, the series just really lost something. Well, speaking of crazy successful franchises, uh, we also have a Conjuring update. THR reports that The Conjuring 4 is on the way with writer David Leslie Johnson McGodrick, who wrote Conjuring 2 and The Devil Made Me Do It, with James Wan and Peter Safran, of course, on to produce. It's said that Michael Chavez, who is currently working on The Nun 2, is set to direct. While I love the first two Conjuring films, I was definitely not a huge fan of the third one, and I believe that's the one that Michael Chavez directed, right? Yeah. Alright. I mean... Is there a reason why Juan has his horse hitched to the sky? <laughs> does I'm he, not sure. Does he owe money or something? Is this blackmail? Because <laughs> unfortunately, it's the same writer as The Devil Made Me Do It as well. No, in all fairness, he also wrote Conjuring 2, which is a damn good movie. Yes. So um, a writer can only do so much. Like once he hands in a script, <laughs> you know, it's up to the producer and director to deliver, you know, the final product. So who knows where things went awry. Um, I love the Warrens, um, so I'm happy that we're going to get more of them, but I I don't know, man, like keep it out of the courtroom this time. (laughs) I know they're trying to change things up, but keep it simple, right? You think they're ever going to do the Amityville story or are they going to just stay away from it? I think eventually they'll probably get there. Um, that would be a prequel at this point, but mm-hmm. because didn't they give us like a flashback at one point? Oh, the they Amityville? might have. Yeah, I could see once the series like completely runs its course, 
you do like a prequel and that way you could like recast the Warrens, uh, which would be a shame, but I mean, you're going to have to have a, a younger version of the mm. couple uh, if you do an Amityville, um, you know, film at this point. All right, Christian. So we also got a couple of trailers from the MCU this week. That's right. First up, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. It's a secret universe beneath ours. What are you so afraid of? There's something I never told you. This place. It isn't what you think. So to start things off, we meet up with Scott, who's enjoying his newfound fame, as we saw alluded to in Miss Marvel. Uh, he's even named Employee of the Century at his old job at Baskin Robbins. And I love that, you know, everyone recognizes him as the true Spider-Man. <laughs> Doesn't matter if he, you know, saved the world. He's still not getting the respect he deserves. <laughs> but is he really this famous now because of the podcast or because he saved the world? <laughs> I'm not sure. I- I'm guessing the podcast. Because you remember, that's where Miss Marvel was getting all of her information about exactly what mm-hmm. went down during, you know, uh, Endgame. So I'm sure it was the podcast that really, you know, brought the spotlight on it. All right. Well, Damon, I'm going to need you to go save the world and come back and, you know, talk about it on the show. Save the world. I have a hard time saving this podcast, Christian. <laughs> so, and that's just from the likes of you. So, so I think saving the world is out of the realm of my abilities. Yes, plot twist. I was the big bad of ANS all along. <laughs> There's no plot twist. <laughs> people, could, people could see that coming from episode one. Apparently, Casey is something of a scientist herself, uh, as she has invented some kind of satellite that sends a signal to the quantum realm for some reason, uh, all to the horror of Janet. Uh, quickly after this, we see Janet, uh, Hank, and Scott all get sucked into the quantum realm. You would think after being in the quantum realm, someone would have said, maybe don't do anything quantum ever yeah, again. You would think the quantum realm would just be <laughs> off limits. At least uh-huh. you'd have to put it by everyone before you start experimenting around with it. So, yeah, I don't know. It feels a little irresponsible on Casey's, you know, behalf, but I mean, she's a young scientist, apparently. Excuse. Excuse. (laughs) The quantum realm is pretty breathtaking. Uh, We see a variety of different creatures, including some that at the very least look humanoid. Uh, This includes Bill Murray, who is dressed up like some kind of dignitary. Uh, There are rumors that he's supposed to be playing a comic book character named Krylar, who's definitely a deep cut. He only has one appearance in an old Incredible Hulk book. Uh, He's associated with the Microverse, which is the comics version of the Quantum Realm. Uh, He does seem to know Janet, though. During a montage, we get a quick glimpse of Casey all suited up. Uh, So perhaps we'll see her debut as uh, Stature here, which would make sense. Uh, We also see Jonathan Majors in his full Kang glory, rocking the green and the purple. Uh, It looks like he's got some kind of blue energy mask going, at least for a moment. Uh, But he looks very comic book accurate, so I was over the moon with this. Uh, He's making some kind of offer to Scott. It seems like he could possibly need his help, but for what? I have no clue. I mean, if he needs his help, I would assume it's to get out, but 
you know, just the menace of how like Majors was putting into this role or this moment, at least I was like, is he actually asking for help or is he, you know, just demanding him yeah, do something? Is this you like know? an ultimatum? You know, uh -huh. um, <laughs> my guess, the latter, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he is King the Conqueror. Exactly. Great. The costume is awesome. I love that. It looks exactly like the comic. Do you think they'll change the name from Stature to something else for Casey? I, I've never liked that name. I, I doubt it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what else would they call it? Like Giant Girl or something? That's awful. I don't know. Stature's fine. They can come up with something better. What, though. like Tall? <laughs> tall Girl? <laughs> <laughs> you think about it, Christian. I want you to workshop it and get back to us next week. All right. Next week, yes. At some point in the trailer, we do see what looks to be Chronolopolis, which is King's kingdom that exists outside of time. Uh, in that city, we see a massive army with glowing blue helmets. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if all these soldiers are just different variants of Kang, because that is a card that he's played in the past in the comic books. So why not do it here? You know, I didn't actually think about that. If they were all just different versions of Kang lined up there, I was thinking too. It, it felt too much like the end of Attack of the Clones, where you saw the clones for the first time from a distance. Like I was like, th this could have been a little bit of a cooler shot if they looked a little bit more realistic. But I don't know. I'm just nitpicking there. I don't know. I mean, I thought it looked impressive, but I mean, maybe it's a case of like the effects not being completely done. Um, Although you would think at this point, with the film only being like, what, like three or four months off? It's, I think it's a February release, right? Um, that the effects should be, you know, finished. Uh, but I mean, they've definitely been struggling in that area lately. Also, it's important to remember, like, it's not the director putting together these trailers. So, hmm. I mean, it might just be a, a case of just having a bad trailer editor or whatever, whatever they call themselves. <laughs> like, they need to just hire the guy who did the kind of forever trailer. Like, he should just do all of Marvel's trailers for now on. We can't I still, cry I every still time, watch David. that trailer. <laughs> it's an amazing trailer. Then we see some sort of massive battle happening. It looks like we're also getting multiple versions of Scott. Uh, so obviously something goes down because we all know you can't trust Kang, right? Uh, I'm just curious if we are also going to get other variants of Kang, though. Like, do we see Immortus? Uh, we know that Immortus and Kang are constantly at odds. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if the big villain in this film isn't actually Immortus. Like, I could totally see a scenario where Kang and Immortus are battling for control over the Quantum Realm, and, like, Scott and crew are just stuck in the middle. God, would Kang be the lesser evil in that situation? No. You know, I mean, okay. he, he would manipulate <laughs> Scott into thinking that, but uh -huh. no, absolutely not. I could see being a situation at the end where, you know, Kang does get free somehow, and then Scott realizes the mistake he made, that like he let the genie out of the bottle. Also, like, knowing Casey's history with Iron Lad, who is a younger version of Kang, like, I'm wondering if they'll lay some breadcrumbs, you know, with that relationship. I could see that happening for sure. You know what? I was surprised we didn't get uh, Modox. That's true. I don't know if that's something they're just waiting to reveal in the actual, like, movie, how it's going to look, but well, we didn't see him at all. We've seen leaks at this point, and I know... Mm, like, merch leaks. Yeah, but he was also part of the footage that they showed at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe they don't want the reveal for the general public to happen until the movie's released. But 
I don't know. Us commoners aren't worthy, all right? <laughs> I guess. I'll be honest, though, from what I saw in the uh, merch leaks, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that they're reworking his look because I wasn't too thrilled with it. It's it's the exact opposite of Kang. You know, it's not comic uh-huh. book accurate at all. And I know Modok is kind of a hard, you know, character to pull off live action form since it's a, a giant head, you know, floating in a chair with little arms and legs. But I don't know. I, I, I feel like Quantum Mania is like the perfect film for the guy to make an appearance in. Well, what was weird was it felt like like an Ant-Man mask, but like stretched out. Like that's the vibe I got from the suit of Modok from those like little images. Huh, I'll have to take another look at it. So do you get the vibe that Janet and Hank aren't making it out of this one? Yes, totally. (laughs) I didn't want to say anything, but I could see them like making like the big sacrifice and saving the day um, at the end of the film. Yeah, no, totally. Or maybe they like choose to stay. You know, one of those oh. deals. <laughs> We're going to make a home here. Mm. Uh, Although I Janet like was pretty better. traumatized, right? She True, she yes. looked absolutely horrified when she realized what Cassie made. So, Well, maybe it's a situation where it's like someone needs to stay here and stand guard, like watch. I guess. You know? I don't know. Well, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania will be coming out February 17th, 2023. All right, Christian. So we also got a trailer for the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Something special he will never forget. What about someone special? We're looking for the legendary Kevin Bacon. We're looking for the legendary Kevin Bacon. I just said that, Drax. If your voice is small and mousy, I think maybe he didn't hear you. You're coming with us as a Christmas present. All right, so honestly, there's not much to this. This is really just a teaser. Uh, but the gist is, Peter's feeling depressed, missing Gamora. So Drax and Mantis decide to go to Earth to find Peter the perfect Christmas gift, which happens to be Kevin Bacon. Yes. <laughs> Much to his horror. <laughs> um, this looks amazing. Uh, it's just a lot of shots of the Guardians celebrating Christmas. They look like they're in a club at one point. Um, we see them actually kidnapping Kevin Bacon. <laughs> him running like across lawn and then following leaping over hedges for some reason it reminded me a lot of when uh cousin eddie uh goes and kidnaps uh chevy chase's boss in christmas vacation okay so i don't know um we do see groot who looks like he's been banging and clanging maybe he's on the juice because i mean he looks swole so um but yeah, I mean, there's really not much to take away from this. Uh, it just looks like a good time. Uh, and I keep on forgetting that this is a thing. So I'm excited. This is less than a month away. Yeah, again, they're dropping a trailer just like within a month <laughs> of a project well, I coming mean, out. And this will be a nice little appetizer before, you know, Guardians 3 comes out, which I think is in May, right? Yeah, May 5th. So anyway, uh, when does this drop, Christian? Uh, this is coming out November 25th this year. Oh, right in time for Black Friday, right? Yep. Get your Amazing Nerd Show merch. Most likely discounted. Like it is like every other weekend. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then we don't have control of that. That's a T-Public thing. So. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, buy some. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> All right, Christian. So you saw a film this past week? That's right. I saw Black Adam. Warning spoiler alert. Minor spoilers for Black Adam ahead. You have been warned. And now, our feature presentation. 
We're here to negotiate your peaceful surrender. Heard about at least three killings this afternoon. I'm not peaceful. Nor do I surrender. Here we go. Nearly 5,000 years after he was bestowed with the almighty powers of the Egyptian gods and imprisoned just as quickly, Black Adam is freed from his earthly tomb, ready to unleash his unique form of justice on the modern world. Black Adam's directed by Wame Colette Sierra and stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So Black Adam was a movie, you know, with a ton of fun, flash and spectacle, but not a whole lot of substance. And if you were expecting more than a badass fucking people up, then you'll surely be disappointed. But in no way was I ever upset with this movie. I was, you know, just at that point overwhelmed. I got exactly what was advertised. The movie is a telling of Black Adam's origin story as he is brought back to the modern DC world after being entrapped for hundreds or thousands of years. Adriana, an archaeologist of some sort, is in contact trying to secure this evil powerful crown made of Eternium, which seems to be Black Adam's only weakness. When soldiers attack her you know, excavation site, she unleashes Dwayne The Rock Johnson dressed as Black Adam to brutally kill everyone there in slow motion. like. Imagine the fun of all those Quicksilver scenes from the X-Men movies, and that is just about what you get in every other action sequence in this film. Which, Which, in all honesty, there were a bunch of fun action sequences in this. But with an overall bland story and pretty much lifeless characters, there wasn't much else to elevate it other than those action set pieces. The characters that stood out the most were Black Adam, Hawkman, as played by uh, Aldous Hodge, and Dr. Fate, as played by Pierce Brosnan. Um, everyone else just really felt bland and poorly written, especially Adriana and her kid Amon, who every interaction Amon has with Black Adam felt like The Rock was just trying to make some kid's day, rather than how we would expect you know, a character like Black Adam to treat the people that are around him during this time period. But I do feel like Aldous Hodge and uh, Pierce Brosnan had great chemistry as part of the you know, Justice Society. Unfortunately, they did bring along two very useless characters in Adam Smasher and Cyclone who are more in their just kind of like rookie years here and bring little to the movie overall, you know, other than a slightly budding romance that doesn't really go anywhere. But either way, I wouldn't mind seeing more of Pierce Brosnan as Dr. Fate and I definitely see a future for Aldous Hodge as Hawkman if they continue to use his character in like, you know, a Justice League film. The effects for the most part were decent, just a few times where the rock CGI, you know, felt kind of weird. And one of the big bad enemies in the third act is like entirely CGI and it just felt a little bit too much like a video game cutscene whenever he was on screen. But for a film that heavily uses, you know, bullet time, it wasn't too hard on the eyes, at least. But the cinematography was just, you know, your standard affair for an action hero film. It didn't really seem like the shots were all that cared about, just as long as we got that heavy punch on screen. But like I said at the beginning, Black Adam doesn't do much to subvert your expectations. If anything, I'd consider this an okay early 2000s action adventure. But in a time where hero films are a dime a dozen, Black Adam doesn't do much to stand out. And perhaps if it had you know, been 
you know, written a little bit better with side characters that I cared about for our anti-hero to duel with other than Hawkman, then maybe it would have left a more memorable, you know, experience. Then maybe I'd feel like I'd actually remember this movie, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to remember a damn thing about Black Adam in about a week or two. So my grade is going to be a C+. Warning spoiler alert. Minor spoilers for Tales of the Jedi ahead. You have been warned. Ahsoka, do not fear it. Dooku, stand down. Darkness is coming. Be prepared for anything. Begin. I want order. I can do better. So I absolutely loved this and wanted more as soon as it was over. Uh, a show like this just is so valuable to lore. It adds so much depth to these characters we already know and love. I just, I wanted everyone at the end, like, to get, like, the Tales of the Jedi treatment. I felt like this was also, like, the best this animation style has ever looked. Just incredibly cinematic, and the score was pitch perfect. I mean, that face-off between Ahsoka and the unnamed Inquisitor, my god, just beautiful. It felt straight out of a kung fu film. I'm hoping that we get more Ahsoka stories in the future that maybe take place between Clone Wars and Rebels. And I mean, that could happen, I guess, in the Bad Batch. But, you know, as long as you have a show like this going, why not do it here, right? Um, but also, what I thought really stole the show was everything we got with Count Dooku. Like, watching him become disillusioned with the Jedi and their place in the galaxy just added so much to the character. Like, getting a glimpse of his relationship with Qui-Gon and watching him, like, mourn his death, which I wasn't expecting to get here. Um, it, it just, I don't know, it took this complete, like, one-dimensional character, and, uh, you know, at least in the films, Cl Clone Wars did add some layers to him. But, like, in, in the films, like, he's pretty much just this cackling, like, villain who is an underboss to Palpatine, and that's pretty much it. This, though, gave him shades of gray. He believes he's justified, and while you might not agree with the choices he's making, at least you understand why he's making them. And at the same time, we see how he's absolutely primed, like Anakin was, to be manipulated by Palpatine. So anyway, I, I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to give this an A, and I hope to get more Tales of the Jedi in the near future. Like, I would just love to see Mace Windu get this treatment. Like, what makes him tick? Like, what's the real reason, like, behind him being so rigid when it comes to blindly following the letter of the law from the Jedi Council? Or hell, let, let's spend time with Master Yoda or even a lesser-known Jedi. I don't know. I guess I just want it all. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, this was fantastic. I mean, I couldn't agree more on wanting this kind of show for Mace Windu. Even throughout all the animated series, he's just hasn't really been fully explored, I feel at least. And we've seen and we've seen with this show now that it can add so much to, you know, these characters we haven't spent that much time with. Getting even a small glimpse of what training, you know, was like for someone like Qui-Gon and seeing where Dooku was in the timeline of Star Wars events adds so much to their characters and definitely not what I expected to get out of this show. At the same time, this series to explore Ahsoka, which is a character we've seen quite a 
a bit throughout these animated series and now the live action side of things but man was this episode with Anakin's training such a great tie-in to the Clone Wars series play even further into the heartbreaking relationship and reality of the events that transpire for Ahsoka after Order 66 with Anakin this was definitely a must watch for Star Wars fans and got me you know back into getting my girlfriend caught up with Clone Wars and Rebels as we immediately started watching it the next day my grade is an A as well and now a quick word from our sponsor Manscaped hey you got bush well you definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today Manscaped taking control of your bush is important these products are so good you're going to be showing pride in your new bush free yard it's a fact that you'll have the best kept nutsack on the cul-de-sac, so save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using our discount code 20NerdShow for 20% off plus free shipping at Manscaped.com. Listeners, you know I don't got bush because Manscaped helps keep my rocket raccoon high oh, and tight. Yeah. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just in need of a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. Listeners, the grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. That's because inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin thanks to its ceramic blades and advanced skin safe technology. No need for night vision goggles, this trimmer has a LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. It's basic landscaping. When you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. The second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control. Instantly add some pep to your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. With a performance package purchase, you get two free gifts, a shed travel bag and the patented high performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming game. So listeners get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. Kate Bush may be trending at the moment, but your bush needs some help. That's right, so make sure you're running up that hill and get 20% off and free shipping at Manscaped.com by using our code 20NerdShow. It's time to level up your grooming game with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. All right, Christian, it's that time again. Let's go ahead and break down episode eight of Andor. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Andor ahead. You have been warned. Cassian Andor is a murderer and a threat to the Empire. I have been trying with the limited tools available to find him. So this is about public safety. Here's what's happened, Cyril. You have engaged the curiosity of the ISB. This week's episode kicks off with Andor making his way to prison, still trying to get just about anyone to hear him out that he simply was just a tourist on the planet. But Andor still gets ushered onto a transport, taking him to Narkina 5, a moon with prison work colonies surrounded by water. At this facility, they don't use weapons to keep their prisoners in line. No, they use electrified floors to shock their barefoot prisoners. I just liked how when he entered this facility, you could tell like he was scoping the, the lay of the land. 
you know, trying to figure out like exactly how he was going to escape. After finding out that he would be, you know, forced to work for the Empire here at this prison camp, Andor gets taken through to the work floor. While on the way there, the arrogance of the Imperials is once more on full display as they clearly show Andor where their protective boots are and have full discussions about how they are slightly understaffed right in front of a prisoner. Yeah, I mean, once they start discussing that someone's late for their shift, I was expecting something to be up, like someone was either like coming to break Andor out or, you know, Andor was going to take advantage of the situation, but that didn't happen. We then get a glimpse at what Andor will be spending most likely the rest of his life doing as he enters a room filled with men putting together some form of cogs. We then meet the shift leader, Kino, played by Andy Serkis, who, while a prisoner, seems to be indoctrinated into making sure his group works at their best, giving them time trials and even punishments for the slowest team. Yeah, this whole prison had a real strong like Kubrick meets Squid Game vibe going. Yes. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, Andy Serkis was a nice surprise. I'm happy that they're letting him be in Star Wars proper, not just like wrapped up in the Snoke of it all. Uh, we didn't know he was going to be part of the series, right? No, I had no idea that he was going to be in this. Yeah, I didn't even hear rumors. Um, I'm guessing they probably were trying to keep that under wraps because if someone saw his name on the cast list, everyone would be like, oh, Snoke is in Andor. <laughs> Which would probably terrify people for all the wrong reasons. It's just fun that he can always play a live action character and a CG character in whatever project he's a part of. <laughs> I, I want to see him in more live action roles. Like, I thought he was fantastic as Alfred. And I love the setup of this foreman who has only like 200 and some days left. So it's almost like he's pushing his crew harder so he makes sure he gets out on time. Can't wait for Andor to fuck oh, that that's, up. That's coming. <laughs> <laughs> On top of that, at Andor's workstation, we meet Melshi, who later in you know the timeline actually helps extract Jin Erso in Rogue One. His crew in general attempts to ask Andor about the outside world, as the heist caused all the inmates' sentences to actually get doubled here. Yeah, he better hope no one finds out that he was involved. Yeah. Because they're going to dump him <laughs> right onto that hot floor. As Andor continues to observe and tries to take in prison life, the best that he can, of course, he also notices prisoners communicating with one another across the station via sign language without the guards actually noticing, since it's clear there are severely more prisoners than guards. We also learn that the floor outside their beds is actually electrified as well, as in Andor's first month there, someone gets fried by it. And it really gives you an idea of like the other prisoners mentality that their only concern was that it was going to stink up the place. I was just worried it was someone on Andor's team, but luckily everyone was still there so he could, you know, get all of his work done, I guess. Um, I don't know, just the way that they reacted just feels like it just feels like something that happens often. Uh-huh. I love the line about I hope you're not a sleepwalker cuz that's probably happened as oh, well. Oh god. <laughs> While Andor assimilates to prison life, the Rebels and the Empire both begin their search for him. Miro, not knowing her target is already in their custody, brings her beliefs on what's been going on with the Rebels to the attention of Colonel Euloran and the rest of the ISB. It's clear to her that there is one man pulling the strings that they need to eliminate and that the only way that they'll get to him is if they find Andor. While attempting to put all the pieces together of what happened 
revenge on Ferex, Miro brings in Cyril Karn. Apparently Karn has been reporting fake findings on Andor for days trying to bring up concern about Cassian. But even when he finally has an audience with someone from the Security Council, it doesn't seem like he has much to offer in, you know, in giving them more of a direction in finding Andor, which makes him look more like the boy who cried you know, wolf in Miro's eyes as she threatens him to never attempt to send them you know, false information again, and also denies him any chance of getting a job for the Empire. But I'm sure as the show goes on, he will uncover something to bring up to the ISB's attention. Yeah, it's only a matter of time until he's rocking one of those uniforms, right? And uh -huh. he's part of the team. If there's anyone to be afraid of climbing the ladder, it's oh, him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh... Yeah, with just, like, how... Mark. Yeah, I mean, with just how, like, obsessed he seems to be with Cassian, like, you could tell he's got, like, psychopath tendencies. Uh-huh. I feel like this actor would have made a good young version of uh, Tarkin if they had wanted to do, like, a prequel. No way, man. He he totally gives me uh, Gabe from The Office vibes. I mean, maybe if he could pull off a mean British accent, but I don't know. Yeah, like, teenage, like, Tarkin? No. No, no he, okay. does, he doesn't have the bravado <laughs> of uh, Peter Cushing. Mon Mothma this week continues to have, you know, her dinner parties, as this time she is trying to raise awareness and stop Palpatine's new strict laws that he has put in place after, you know, the rebels' actions on Eldani. Again, old friend Tay comes by, and it's clear by both Mon Mothma's daughter and husband that Tay has been by a few times now, as their suspicious looks, you know, really fly at the pair of them. But what's more concerning for Mon Mothma is Tay's news that laundering, you know, the stolen credit and funds for the rebellion is becoming increasingly difficult with new auditors at the banks watching their every move. I feel like the daughter's gonna eventually figure out what Mamathma is up to. Um, also, I, I don't trust Tay. Oh, you don't? Yeah, I feel like they're gonna pull like a double swerve here. <laughs> like he's gonna be the one who like ends up like ratting her out. That would suck because I mean, she's been giving him all that money. Uh -huh. and right yeah that'd be rough like or maybe it's a case of him trying to like blackmail her or something like that oh is she gonna have to kill him <laughs> that would be awesome <laughs> that would be badass it'd be a total like different side of mom mothma that we've never seen before mm -hmm. but it would show that she's really more like luthan than she would want to admit on ferrix it seems that marva is sticking true to her plans to help the rebellion as she was discovered attempting to break into the tunnels that run underneath the hotel to actually give access to the rebels but her waning health ultimately caused her to pass out as we see bix and barso checking in on her as we kind of suspected you know obviously she is ill um, mm -hmm. we'll see if like Cassian gets to have like a final moment with her or if it's going to be a situation where he discovers that she's passed away, um, you know, after, you know, he breaks out of prison and he's definitely got to, you know, use those tunnels for something. Yeah, no, right? that was some heavy foreshadowing. So uh -huh. <laughs> maybe it's a situation after she's passed away. We find out like one of her last like dying acts was opening up those tunnels. At the same time, we see that Vel and Cinta are here on Ferrix spying on Marva and any known associates of Andor trying to find a lead of their own to finding Cassian. 
this is where we learned a little bit more about their relationship as Vel wishes for them to, you know, run off together. But Cinta reminds her harshly that she's in this battle to the death with the Empire, you know, versus Vel, who may just be, you know, someone running away from her former rich life. The two of them decide to go their separate ways, with Vel heading out so that it's a little bit less suspicious for Senta to keep tabs on what's going on on Ferex. Bix, after seeing how bad of shape Marva is in, heads to her friend Pac's shack and uses his secret radio to send a message out to Luthen to help her find Andor. However, Clea on Coruscant receives the message and tells Luthen he must just cut off all communication with Ferex as the Empire will close in on him if he keeps the line up. Luthen begrudgingly decides it's best to just cut the line. Yeah, it definitely seems like Luthen's playing a little too fast and loose for Clea's likings. So I'm wondering if they're going to come into some sort of conflict eventually. The part I found interesting about this moment was it seemed like he didn't actually know Marva so far, or at least his only connection to Andor was Bix. I mean, if that's true, then it raises the question exactly how did he get all of his information on Andor mm -hmm. in the first place? Because we just kind of assumed that it was going to end up being through some like past relationship with Marva. What follows, though, is the Empire discovering the signal that Bix was sending and Miro not only torturing Pack, but bringing in Bix for questioning. I just love how cold and calculating Miro is to like leave, you know, dude in there for, for uh -huh. you know, Bix to see just to kind of intimidate her even more. I love that she pretended like she didn't just tell him to leave yeah, him there. Like, what too. are you doing? Get him out of here. <laughs> <laughs> the episode then closes with Luthen meeting up with Saw Gerrera, with Luthen attempting to, you know, make a trade in which Saw Gerrera would team up with another rebel cell to take out an Imperial power station. We learn of, you know, the many groups of rebels out there as Saw kind of lists off, you know, ones that he doesn't get along with. Luthen wants to bring all these groups together to create the Rebel Alliance, but at this time, their ideals, you know, simply don't align, which ultimately is why Saw declines Luthen's request. Also, that Luthen kind of insulted him as well. So I really enjoyed this back and forth, like getting a real insight on their mindsets. Um, you know, just the cruel reality of what they're actually doing, like trying to like stir up the empire, knowing that it's going to cause even more oppression, uh, all in the hopes of, you know, sparking a rebellion, um, you know, that they see it as a sacrifice, you know, worth making. I mean, we already pretty much knew that Saul was kind of a lost cause and there was no way he was going to join any kind of group. Um, but I'm wondering if we're going to witness Luthen, you know, talking to the other leaders of these cells and convincing them to, like, unite as one. Or at least trying, yeah. you know, see if they're on the same page as Saw or not. But I don't know. All in all, another strong episode. I'm just loving the amount of time they've gotten to tell this story um, because I feel like they definitely needed it, right? to fill in all these blanks and to, you know, mm -hmm. really take a deep dive to like the minutia of it all. For once in one of these Disney Plus series, I feel like they've got like time to let the story really breathe. Like they're not just like sprinting towards the finish line. And we already know that they're going to get a second season. Yes, which is awesome. I, I didn't expect to like fall in love with Cassia Andor's story here, you know, for this show. But uh, they've done a great job with it so far. And I, I love that this whole episode structure is just Cassian going to prison while everyone else is looking for him, you know. Anyway, go ahead and join us next week as we break down episode nine of Andor. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for House of the Dragon ahead.
You have been warned. You are right, Rhaenys. I reached too far. And for nothing. Our pursuit of the Iron Throne is at an end. We shall declare for no one. We will retire to high tide to be content with our grandchildren. Jace, and Luke, and Joff are claimants to the throne. Those boys will not be safe so long as Aegon is king. Rhaenyra was complicit in our son's death. That girl destroys everything she touches. That girl is holding the realm together at present. Every man standing around the painted table urges her to plunge the realm into war. Rhaenyra is the only one who's demonstrated restraint. In the season conclusion for House of the Dragon, we finally got to see Rhaenyra take up her position as queen, at least from Dragonstone, after Rhaenys brought her the news. And I feel like, you know, Rhaenys did what we all were doing, which was watching to see what kind of ruler Rhaenyra would actually become. Rhaenyra throughout the show has had, you know, several moments where, you know, it could look like she could either go towards the, you know, tyrannical roots or possibly be a great leader. But ultimately how she decides to handle becoming the new queen is to kind of follow in her father's footsteps and attempt to keep unity in a time where everything is set for war. We also got a heartfelt scene of her losing her child. And again, another similar fashion to what happened early on in the show with her having to cremate her baby. What would lead to Rhaenyra's change of heart would be, you know, Daemon and her children who ultimately become the catalyst for war, as her middle son, Prince Lucerys, met his demise by Prince Aemon's dragon after being sent as an envoy, you know, in Rhaenyra's stead to, you know, try and figure out who her allies are. To be honest, you know, when they were describing all of the, like, places that they needed to go and talk with and all that stuff, it really sounded like they were just setting up the next season. We also learned in this episode that Damon, who is, you know, ready to burn down King's Landing, was actually never entrusted with the tale of ice and fire. As Rhaenyra's actress Emma Darcy explained in the, you know, after show thing, um, that the character finally realizes she was always the one after discovering this, and it kind of validated, you know, her father's wishes as well for her to rule. So all in all, it was another decent episode with a lot of great character work from Emma Darcy, actually. Well, we saw her go from, you know, the peaceful queen to the end where it seems like she's ready to kill just about anyone. But overall, for the season as a whole, I thought the time skips and how it was paced would bother me a lot more than it did. While I wouldn't have mind, you know, going through the years with these characters, the way that the show actually designed the time jumps and explained them and kept things moving was handled in a way that doesn't insult the audience. You know, the exposition that followed the jumps weren't annoying in the slightest, which for me was the biggest hurdle for this show, you know, to get over everyone. However, I won't forget just how poorly I felt that battle with the crab feeder was handled, as that was the only moment that really suffered due to, you know, the show's pace. Which I hope is something that they're able to kind of slow down on and allow these battles to have you know, more weight to them and give better character moments because war is coming either way. And I'd hate for the fighting sequences to be this show's biggest weakness because it's definitely not a performance issue with any of this cast. This has been one of my favorite, you know, performances from Matt Smith, you know, since his days as the Doctor. And the younger and older cast for the aging characters both killed it. Alicent and Rhaenyra are fantastic characters, and they're led by great actresses. 
but their kids got kind of the shaft a little bit as Amond is probably the only one that really got a lot of screen time and even that and even his moments aren't all that memorable while I did grow to like them a little bit more than I did initially I hope there's more in the future to bring to this show with these characters. But either way, let's not forget King Viserys as played by Patty Considine, as that performance topped just about everyone else in this show. I absolutely loved his character every moment we got, you know, just felt so real. And you couldn't help but feel horrible for him throughout it all. You know, absolutely an award-winning performance from Patty. But with all that said, my grade for season one is going to be a B plus, but I do believe that season two has A plus potential. I'm excited for this series to return in 2024. Well, first things first, it's confession time. Uh, after 250 episodes, we kind of messed up. <laughs> when coming up with the concepts for our fifth annual horror month and deciding we wanted to count down our favorite horror films in each of the last five decades, we totally forgot we did the 2010s already about two years ago sometime in early 2020. So we apologize for the redundancy, but after so many episodes, it was bound to happen. With that being said, we still wanted to book in Horror Month and put a bow on it, so this is going to be our 2010 countdown redux. I mean, the previous countdown was a looser format, so this is going to have a bit more polish to it. Also, as more time has passed, we've had more time to reflect, of course, so our opinions might have shifted and changed. Well, with that said, and our journey through the decades coming to a close with our final countdown, Damon, what made the 2010s stand out in horror? So in the 2010s, horror continued to thrive like it did in the previous decade. And while we watched some trends burn out, others carried over from the aughts and started to evolve. With remakes becoming a bit of a dirty word, we saw the rise of the requel, really Hollywood's way of having their cake and eating it too, both capitalizing on nostalgia for a series and resetting the table at the same time. But speaking of the mainstream, the 2010s was the decade of James Wan and horror fans were just living in it. After launching one of the biggest horror franchises a decade earlier with Saw, James Wan proved he still had the Midas touch by delivering us not one, but two new blockbuster genre series in Insidious and The Conjuring, the latter establishing its own haunted universe with successful spin-offs like The Nun and Annabelle, who both have their own sequels. The one thing that the 2010s really did solidify was James Wan is one of the most influential names in horror history. With the genre garnering more praise from critics and audiences more than ever before, we saw studios recognize the creative renaissance that carried over from the decade previously, as they started to be more willing to take risks and think outside of the box. With that, we also got a new generation of amazing artists wanting to carry the flag for the genre. Directors like Robert Eggers, Jordan Peele, and Ari Aster, to name a few, dived into the freedom and metaphorical nature of the medium. Art house, or quote-unquote elevated horror, became the buzzword of the day for critics. But of course, like all labels, this incredibly reductive term misses the point. And in a way, it feels like it diminishes horror as a whole. Like somehow the work of Craven, Carpenter, and Romero, and a slew of others haven't been quote-unquote elevating the genre by delivering compelling message-driven work in the decades prior. 
But regardless of what label you want to classify it under, horror in the 2010s was filled with some of the richest storytelling of any genre. And that's because it's a medium of entertainment, like any good art form, that is constantly redefining itself, stretching boundaries and tackling themes in ways that other genres would never dare. And here's to hoping that it continues to do so well into the 2020s. So before we move on to the countdown, some quick honorable mentions from me. Uh, the Kill List, 2015's Invitation, Midsummer, Insidious, Babadook, Us, It, and Get Out. Christian, do you have any honorable mentions? Yeah, for my honorable mentions, since you already stated like half the films I was going to say, um, I'm going to say Annabelle Creation and Ouija Origin of Evil, which were great sequels to their original films. And now for the Amazing Nerd Show's top five horror films of the 2010s, starting with Damon's number five, Sinister. Exposed to the images we're especially vulnerable to Google's possession and or abduction. What if you destroyed them? Sorry, I, I don't follow. If you destroyed the images with a fire, what, what, what would happen then? What? Do you mean literally or in the stories? In the, in the stories. If an image was destroyed, then the gateway would be closed and Bagul would no longer have access to this world, right? Mr. Oswald, what kind of book are you writing? Exactly. So Sinister wasn't originally on my list a few years back when we counted down our favorite horror films of the decade. But something strange happened. We have the infamous quote-unquote scientific study that named Sinister the scariest film of all time. And even though I enjoyed the Scott Derrickson Helm film, I scoffed at the notion that it was somehow the scariest because obviously that's something completely subjective. But what the study did do was get me to revisit the movie and my appreciation for it did grow. The film is incredibly effective as we watch a true crime author's life spiral out of control after he discovers multiple recordings of a string of horrific murders. So much of the tension is wrapped up in us watching Ethan Hawke's reaction to these sadistic crimes that it's hard not to get engulfed by the terror as we witness everything unfold. Sinister has this strange hypnotic feel that's hard to break free of until the final frame. And while it might not be my pick for scariest movie of all time, it's still a damn good horror film that deserves recognition. Christian's number five, Don't Breathe. You can't do this to me. There's nothing a man cannot do once he accepts the fact that there is no God. No! In an era of remakes and soft reboots, 2016's Don't Breathe stood out as one of the more interesting new IP to come out for the horror genre. Taking on what should have been an easy robbery, Jade Levy's character Rocky gets in way over her head when the crew comes across the blind man Norman Nordstrom, as played by Stephen Lang, who for me was set up to be, you know, one of our next horror icons in this film. The sure amount of intensity, you know, felt when Norman is on the attack, along with Rocky and crew doing everything to stay as silent as they can created a thrilling experience that would have you know entire audiences holding their breath in fear. The quiet moments of this film just draw you right in and immerse you into this story that you know drops a wild ending on the viewer that you have to see for yourself. If only the sequel could have just carried the same momentum here as the first film. But unfortunately that just ended up being downright terrible. But still give Don't Breathe One a, a chance here. It was a great film and it definitely deserves to be on my top five list. Damon's number four, Train to Pusan. 
빨리 가야 돼요. 윤상 우리 딸 이름 사원이야. 알았지? Trainee Busan reinvigorated the zombie subgenre in a way that would make George Romero himself smile. This South Korean film takes a character-driven story about empathy and parenthood and blends it with balls-to-the-wall non-stop action. A workaholic father and his estranged daughter are trapped in the middle of a zombie outbreak on a train to Busan. This white-knuckling roller coaster of a film is as much about the importance of unconditional love and self-sacrifice as it is about the zombie apocalypse. Really honoring Romero's work, but at the same time delivering something uniquely of its own. You get beautifully shot, cinematic, action-packed sequences all held together with a strong emotional core. And that's what really makes this film a must-watch for young and old horror fans alike. Christian's number four, Get Out. How do you feel now? I can't move. You can't move. Why can't I move? You're paralyzed. Just like that day when you did nothing. You did nothing. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. <laughs> The directorial debut of Jordan Peele takes the sometimes uncomfortable feeling of being the only person of color in a room and just ramps it up with one of the absolute worst possible outcomes in this horrifying tale. Daniel Kulia's uh, performance is the driving force of this film as you watch him discover what's really going on in this neighborhood. He, like the unsettling feeling he's having, continues to sink and sink and sink. And while I will say the film isn't super scary because a lot of the edge of the movie is cooled off with some good humorous moments, there are still plenty of moments that live with me to this day. Like the chair scene, for instance, with Katherine Keener. It was a fantastic start to Peel's work in the horror genre that makes you look out for the next film he comes out with. Christian and Damon's number three, The Conjuring. Look what she made me do. Hey. Ed? Look what you made me do! James Wan reintroduced the world to the haunted house subgenre by reminding audiences, when done right, just how frightening these films can be. By no means did he reinvent the wheel, instead he used a stylized approach and keen sense on how to build dread to deliver an intense, compelling story about good versus evil. But with that being said, I would argue the secret in the sauce is really the Warrens, the characters based on the notable real-life ghost hunters. They're just the perfect protagonists for these type of tales, and the chemistry between Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga is undeniable. They're one of the main ingredients that helped spawn a Conjuring verse, making it one of the most successful horror franchises of all time. Well, 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 look at that. Conjuring is also my number three. I believe I've said this a couple times, to be honest, but the 
Conjuring was one of those movies I was really waiting for here. For years up until that point, I was wondering if anything would be able to really capture that 70s and 80s you know, horror feel, but with modern techniques. And James Wan absolutely delivered on that. The tale of Ed and Lorraine Warren also sets up plenty of great tales that you can tell. And with actors like Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga behind it to kill it every time, it's no wonder it's had such a lasting impression amongst horror fans. But The Conjuring 1 itself has been one of the best takes on the haunted house genre in years and definitely deserves to be watched by you every horror month season. Damon's number two, It Follows. It Follows is a movie about the anxiety of sexuality and STDs coming to life and literally trying to kill you. In this dark and twisted coming-of-age film, we see a group of friends deal with the ultimate consequences of their actions as they're relentlessly hunted and murdered by an unseen supernatural force after a sexual encounter. The film is a pulse-pounding allegory that taps into the aesthetics of horror icon John Carpenter with its cinematography and score. Writer-director David Robert Mitchell does an amazing job of putting us in the protagonist's shoes and asking, what would you be willing to do to survive? Christian's number two. The Lighthouse. What? 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 If you're looking for a simple tale of pure madness, then Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse is the one for you. What this film captured between Willem Dafoe and Robert Penson to this day just blows my mind. As you know, this film is 100% all about the performances. You're not here for jump scares or dramatic music cues, which there is plenty of great music in this, but you're here to see what's left of these two men after their sanity is washed away by the tides. If Pattinson as Batman wasn't enough to wash away the taste of Twilight, then this will. Pattinson shows you his infinite amount of range in this film. It's a true experience getting to watch Pattinson bounce off of an actor like William Dafoe, and one I say is an absolute must watch for psychological horror fans, though maybe you want to put on some subtitles as Willem Dafoe really went in on that accent. And for Christian and Damon's number one, Hereditary. Hello? Mom? 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 I don't like this. Dad, I don't like this. What's happening? Please stop. What's going stop. on? Mom? Please, please stop. What's Dad, happening? Why is stop, everyone please? scared? So, Hereditary is one of the most disturbing films I've seen in a long, long time. In fact, so much so that it's the film I've seen the least on this list. And that's honestly because I have to be in the right headspace to watch it, because it's the kind of movie that stays with you for days afterwards. We watch as the family unravels at the seams after a great tragedy occurs. This unnerving movie about possession and the occult is really a wolf in sheep's clothing though, because underneath lies a gut-wrenching family drama about how grief is all-consuming. 
Director Ari Aster is the kind of artist that feels dangerous. He has no qualms whatsoever about showing you something that feels out of bounds, and then lingering on it for maybe a moment too long. Toni Collette is an absolute force of nature in this film. Her performance is both captivating and primal. Because her emotions feel just so raw and real, it's hard not to watch. Hereditary is more than just a film, it's an experience that's not for the faint of heart. In a genre that fans have pretty much seen everything to this point, it still manages to challenge you and your sensibilities on multiple levels. And that's why it's easily my number one pick for horror film of the decade. Yeah, Hereditary just surpasses any expectations I had for a horror film and goes beyond just being a standout in the 2010s, as it is also my number one here on this list. Even with an opportunity to rethink our lists, nothing in horror has stuck with me the way that this has. Ari Aster's approach to the family's grief and suffering along with one of the best performances in horror ever by Toni Collette makes for one of the best unbearable recommendations I can give. Because really, I'm in the same boat as Damon here. I can't just pick up Ari Aster's work and watch it for fun. Even putting you know the clips in this show gives me pause as I'm reminded of the events of this film, which all plays out with an incredible, unnerving cinematography. Hereditary is an A-plus for The Amazing Nerd Show and deserves to be seen at least once if you haven't. Well, that's going to do it for our fifth annual Horror Month. Make sure to let us know your favorite horror films of the 2010s. Yeah, you can find us on social media at Amazing Nerd Show. Also, let us know uh, what you'd like to see us do next year for Horror Month. Because we love doing it, but I'll be honest, we're starting to run out of ideas. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. All right, so we got a couple short stories here to talk about as, you know, Phil Spencer is preparing everyone for price hikes coming for Xbox and Xbox Game Pass. Tom Warren from The Verge reported on Phil uh, making this recent quote. I do think at some point we'll have to raise the prices on certain things, but going into the holidays, we thought it was important to maintain the prices. That same day, we learned from Phil that Game Pass has been earning about 15% of their game's revenue, as there has been a huge amount of growth of you know PC users of Game Pass, which definitely includes me as I use Game Pass for a lot of PC games. While it's disheartening to hear that Game Pass may be increased in price, it's definitely not a big shocker. You know, we've been seeing stuff like this happen with companies that use streaming rights and stuff like that, like Netflix, who raise their price every single year to squeeze out just a little bit more profit. What I think would be foolish is to raise console prices. They didn't, he definitely didn't say anything about doing that, but the console's reaching its third year here, and at this point, you wouldn't expect you know that to go up you would expect that to start coming down a little bit you know an average console life is about five to seven years depending on what happens with this current generation of gaming either way we've seen game prices go up just about everywhere and i won't be shocked if xbox makes all their games you know 70 to 80 dollars in the future i mean fuck i just paid 70 dollars for the base of the quarry this month on you know, PlayStation, but those bastards are greedy every time. Either way, on a lighter note, um, CD Projekt Red announced that they will be remaking The Witcher, which is the first installment in the franchise, which I'm excited for as I've actually never played the original game. I hopped in on three. While I've watched others play it, I've n just never gotten around to doing it myself, and I feel like this would give me a reason to do so. Um, they confirmed that this was one of the, you know, codename projects we talked about a few weeks ago, with the title being worked on 
done um, by the Fool's Theory team using Unreal Engine 5. As the project is in early stages, it will be you know quite a while before we see anything you know from it. But you have to imagine if this is as successful as Resident Evil remakes have been, um, that you can probably bet that Witcher 2 will be remade in the future as well. Speaking of Resident Evil, this Halloween weekend, I hopped into you know playing some Resident Evil Village DLC, so stop by our Twitch and either catch me live or watch replays of our streams to catch all the games we're playing currently. God of War Ragnarok is just on the horizon, and you can bet I'm gonna be playing it all fucking week. So follow us today to catch that live on Twitch. But all right, now let's move on to wrestling. Virginia, I love you, baby, first of all. Let's just talk about that real quick. With all due respect, for all your shortcomings, too. With all due respect, and I do mean with all due respect, when I think of Jonathan, only one word comes to mind, and that word, it's got three letters, and it starts with an M, and that word is mama ma Max, you can't just say with all due respect and then say something insulting like that. Renee, with all due respect, shut your mouth. Listen! All right, Christian, so once again, due to time constraints, we're going to have to cut wrestling a little short this week. Uh, But before we go, we wanted to just briefly talk about the main event angle that happened this week on Dynamite. We saw Jon Moxley defend his title against Pentagon, uh, which felt like completely came out of left field. Uh, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm glad that we got the match and I don't know if this was just kind of a makeup for, you know, what happened with the Hangman Moxley match, uh, the week prior. It just, I don't know, feels like it kind of diminishes the main event of full gear. Um, because like Pentagon, like there was, there's really no rhyme or reason for him to be getting a title shot. Yeah. There was no way I was going to believe that he was going to win the title. Exactly. Exactly. So I like started fantasy booking. Like I was like, well, what if Max dresses <laughs> up like Pentagon, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. and beats Moxley somehow? Like I was like, what? because I couldn't make sense of this. Uh, but then I was like, OK, well, maybe in Tony's mind, since the main events, you know, ended the way it did last week, he wanted, a, you know, a make good, um, which whatever. But then you get the angle with the firm that happens after the match, uh, which was a very good match, by the way. But you know, we're short on time, so we're not going to go into the details of the match. Uh, but so it made a little more sense to me. But at the same time, it was like, well, this could have been one of their eliminators, though. Like they could have done one of their like, you know, quote unquote title eliminators where it's just like for a shot at the belt. Um, uh-huh. But I don't know. They haven't updated the contenders like the, you know, the the top contenders list in two months at this point. So it oh really on the yeah, website. Yeah. So it looks like we might be done with, you know, the rankings. I'm not lying. Like I'm a little sad about it because I felt like on paper it was a great idea. But I don't know. The execution's just been a little lackluster. But regardless, yes, after the match, we have the firm come out, jump Moxley. This is all after MJF's promo uh, earlier in the night where, you know, we see him have uh, like a confrontation with uh, Stokely and he tells Stokely that he doesn't want him involved whatsoever with Moxley and that, you know, they better not lay a hand on Moxley before full gear or they're all fired. Also at this point, like Max is pretty much working as like a full-fledged, you know, baby face. Well, as much as he could possibly 
be a baby face. Like, he's still a jerk, but, you know, he's milking the crowd and everything like that, working the cheap pops, all the while still being MJF, though. I will say, though, I was a little surprised that he didn't bring up Renee's relationship with with Yeah, I was, too. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe he just saw that as, like, low-hanging fruit, or since he is, quote-unquote, working as a babyface right now, like, you know, he didn't want to bring heat onto himself. But with that being said, he did tell her to also shut the hell up, so... I don't know. I just thought it was funny because uh, Ray Phoenix brought up Mox's relationship, but uh, MJF didn't. Yeah, because that is strange. <laughs> so I was starting to think like, well, maybe it's an edict. Maybe they, you know, are trying to keep them separate. But then, yeah, yeah, Phoenix does it. So, but like after the promo took place and after Stokely interrupted and Maxwell like basically told them if he interferes or gets involved whatsoever, like he's going to fire them. I was like, oh, well, this is all part of an angle. Like, obviously, Max is working like Rock in 98, you know, right before Survivor Series, where basically the fans turn Rock babyface. Like, he was just so white hot that there was just no denying him. So they turn him babyface basically for like a month, maybe a month or two, all just to have Rock turn and become even a bigger heel as they parody the Survivor Series screw job. But as of right now, that doesn't seem to be the case because we have Moxley getting his ass handed to him by the firm right after the match. They right away address the fact that the Blackpool Combat Club's not there to save him by showing us the obligatory uh, locker room door chained up. Uh, (laughs) Just explaining that, you know, obviously, you know, they planned for this. Maxwell comes out to like a thunderous like pop. He looks completely torn, not knowing what to do. And then eventually he runs down to the ring to make the save, getting in Stokely's face, Firing the firm like he said he was going to. And then the firm turns on him and jumps him and gives him a legitimate beatdown. He takes a big boot from Morrissey. He takes the ego's edge from uh, Ethan Page. And then he gets put through a fucking table. (laughs) So you don't really get a more legit beatdown than what Max went through. You know, I mean, part of me obviously still thinks it's just a giant elaborate swerve. But... Max isn't the kind of heel that's willing to get his ass kicked for anything. And I don't know if it really makes much sense for him to get his ass beat like this all in the name of Moxley, like, letting his guard down. Because, you know, regardless, Moxley's not going to let his guard down. I wouldn't be surprised if this doesn't end up setting up some kind of match between MGF and someone in the firm. Just kind of adding more validity that, you know, MGF has, like, turned the page and has found a new path. Uh... But I still feel like it's a swerve because <laughs> it's MJF. Um, uh-huh. And I'm wondering if like maybe maybe Regal's involved. Well, in what way would Regal be involved? Well, what if MJF is pulling him on Mothma here? He's having you look at the rock in his one hand so you don't <laughs> notice the knife to your throat in the other. Right? Like, uh-huh, uh-huh. maybe the drama between him and the firm, that's all legitimate. But maybe that's all to distract you from the ultimate swerve job of Regal turning on the Blackpool Combat Club and joining, you know, MJF. I mean, that would be a sick twist to have, like, all these guys that have been worshipping and, like, you know, really respecting Regal and he just turns on all of them. I mean, and that's totally in his DNA. Like, like, I don't know why anyone would ever trust William Regal. So, I mean, he just feels like the perfect mentor for MJF, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. Especially now that they've like laid the groundwork for their prior relationship, and and they could totally twist it where Regal's like, you know, I followed you here to this company because I knew you know, the potential you had. And, you know, I was always rooting for you in WWE. I was trying to bring you in, but, you know, they're too blind to see, you know, your talent. And if you think about it, it seems like it's Regal who decides we're all going to have a sit-down conversation after this match with the Blackpool uh, Combat Club. So he's mm. the one who gets them in the locker room, you know, so then, you know, someone can chain up those doors and they can't get out. And then you have the moment where Max swears that he's not going to use the dynamite diamond ring. But maybe he is keeping his word because, no, he's not going to use the diamond ring. He's going to use Regal's brass knuckles. Which would all come full circle, you know, from that that promo. And now I'm going to be disappointed that doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not going to be that guy. Um, I like how unpredictable this storyline feels right now. So I'm digging Mm. that about this because like up to the point of the firm actually beating down MJF, I was like, okay, I know where you're going. It's cool. But, you know, I could read the tea leaves. I, I, you know, I I could see what direction you're headed in now with that major beatdown. I'm like, okay, well, maybe not. So it kind of gets you to think outside of the box, which I enjoy. I mean, it's that kind of like deeper layered storytelling that, you know, makes me an AEW fan. Especially when it comes to all of MJF's like angles. So does anyone in the firm still have a job with AEW or? Well, most like, of them. When he fired them. No, because most a, of them were actually under contract with them. With yes, AEW. I'm just, although, I'm just fucking around. Although, <laughs> <laughs> according to the whole Matt's, you know, Hardy storyline, who knows, right? Exactly. I mean, God knows where that's going. Hopefully it's, it's all over. <laughs> no, they had him rapping on Rampage. Uh, and rampage this past week was horrible oh my god and it was a live show i was like who bought tickets to this like it was just so weird i was like why would you book a show like this and like like i could understand if the show was just kind of like an add-on at the end of dynamite mm -hmm. but i was like i can't believe this is a live show like the show the week prior was better so i don't know man like, you're going to kill towns doing that shit. I mean, personally, I have no idea what to think of with the firm. Like, I don't know where they go next. Like, I assume if they're going to start doing the whole, like, MJF's going to decide to go through each one of them. You know, they'll start with, like, Moriarty, and then they'll go to, like, Paige. And maybe he'll work his way to Morrissey or something I, like that. Try to give him that baby face yeah. look until he gets to the paper. I mean, there's only three weeks left at this point. Mm-hmm. But I could see that happening. At least one or two matches, right? Yeah. Um, do we see the pinnacle eventually come and, you know, save MJF? Or is there just too much history between him and Wardlow at this point? I don't think it's impossible, but at the same time, I just don't know if Tony's paying attention too much to Wardlow. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's going to move into the pay-per-view at some point. That's, I'm, I'm guessing. If... Well, they have a Ring of Honor pay-per-view in December. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm just assuming Wardlow versus Joe's got to be coming sooner than later. Yeah. Yeah, it might be a couple months off at this point since they're buddy buddy, but and they've mm-hmm. got it seems like they're going to have some kind of tag match, um, you know, probably at the pay per view. But who knows? But anyway, to quote Tony Schiavone, we're desperately out of time. Uh, 
Join us next week, and hopefully then we'll be able to take a deeper dive on the latest episode of AEW Dynamite. Well, that does it for this week. That's right, and as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some Amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. All right, make sure to join us next week as we talk all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture and whatever's going on in the world of wrestling. Well, all right, guys, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. All these traditions. Jack-o'-lanterns. Putting on costumes. Handing out treats. They were started to protect us, but nowadays, no one really cares. I didn't do such a good job, did I? What do you think? Okay. Need a rope here? Wait, that's right. There's another tradition. Very important. Always check your candy.